You're listening to the Stream Grace Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Inside the Man Box. I am Rick Fry. And we are brought to you by Oneness Ministries, grace-based, hope-filled, spirit-led counseling, teaching, and life coaching. To learn more about us, go to our website at oneness-ministries.org. Also, Marshall Fence, the premier residential and commercial fence company in Oklahoma City metro area. Contact them at 405-691-1191 or visit their website, marshallfence.com. I am extremely excited today. Of course, I say that about every guest I have, but I think I'm a little more excited today that we have Dr. Andrew Farley. Welcome, Drew. Hey, Rick. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, the pleasure is mine. I want to say a little bit about you. He's, Drew is a husband and father, best-selling author. Um, some of his books are God Without Religion, The Hurt and the Healer that he co-wrote with Bart Millard, The Naked Gospel, Heaven is Now, Relaxing with God, The Art of Spiritual War, Twisted Scripture, which I really enjoyed, Untangling 45 Lies Christians are, Have Been Told, and your newest book is The Perfect You. Yes, yeah, The Perfect You is all about uh, living from the heart and what it means to be a a new-hearted self, you know, God uh, crucified our old self, made us new. So can you trust your heart? I don't know about you, Rick, but I heard that I was supposed to ask Jesus in my heart. And then a decade later, I was told I had a wicked heart and I never even <laughs> reconciled those. I never wrestled with it. I never thought about it. And, you know, in this book, Tim Chalice and I are saying, hey, you've got a go-to place. You can trust your heart. God cleaned house and moved in and and you really are different at the core now. I love the book. I just finished it. Um, and from the beginning, um, in the introduction, it, he, he, you talk about what you just said. I wish my whole heart belonged to God. I wish I looked more like Jesus. I wish I were closer to God. I hear that almost every day when I counsel men. Yeah. So it's, yeah. It's, something we, it's something we're taught and have believed most of my Christian experience. Yeah, so everybody's searching and hoping and begging and pleading for what they already have in Christ. And in this book, The Perfect You, we're saying you've already got it, that God has done it, that you can count yourself alive to him. Self has become a dirty word. I mean, self self is a dirty word in church. And and then you, wait, you say, wait a minute, let me look at the New Testament here. It says, my old self died. I'm the new self. What's not to like about this new self? And, you know, we're told our hearts are hard. We're told our hearts are not right with God. Uh, we, we're told to examine our hearts. So we continually hear this verbiage that there's something wrong with yourself and something wrong with your heart. And then you end up participating in what you think is the destruction of you. And we call that Christianity. It's, it's really unhealthy. And Jesus said, the truth will set you free. So in this book, The Perfect You, we're setting the record straight. We're encouraging people, hey, if you're in Christ, see yourself as compatible with him. You're, you're not an obstacle. You're an instrument. Amen. And right off the bat, you inform us that it's uh what we're taught is a behavior improvement program. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what Christianity is to the outsider. You mm-hmm. ask somebody, Hey, do you want to receive Christ? They say, well, you know, I haven't read my Bible lately. Hey, do you want to receive Christ? Well, I haven't gone to church lately. Uh, hey, do you want to receive Christ? Well, you don't understand. I smoke and I drink. And so immediately when people think of Christ, they think of behavior management. When yes. they think of Christianity, they think of a a sin management system. And really we need to see, I mean, God is, God is a heart surgeon. That's, that's what he's about. He he is cutting out our heart of stone and giving us a new heart. And, you know, a lot of people look at God as a banker. He's canceling our debt. Well, uh, that's true in regard to forgiveness, but then they look at him as a travel agent. He's stamping our passport (laughs) for heaven well, he's more than a banker and more than a travel agent. Uh, he is a, a brilliant heart surgeon. So in the perfect you, Rick, we're saying, 
hey, God did a fundamental exchange at the core of your being, and you need to know about it. Yes. What uh, inspired you to write this book, and and why did you write it with Tim? Yeah, so Tim is uh, one of my best friends in the world. I mean, you know him. He's hilarious. He's uh, an amazing guy. And uh, I just decided it would be a lot of fun to do something together. We started traveling and speaking, so why not? Uh, write a book together. And that was really the inspiration, having fun and, uh, you know, just recognizing that that we can uh, have fun together in a project and and really um, minister to a lot of people and reach a lot of people. So as far as, you know, the the actual purpose for this book, I would say, uh, you know, there's lots of books about identity in Christ. There's lots of books about grace. Yes. But what sets this apart, I think, is you know, the word heart and the concept of the human heart being the the seat of your passions and desires that you've got a safe place to go to, you know, take that one foot journey from head to heart, live from here, that it's that simple, that it's that easy, that you can do marriage from the heart and, and do listening from the heart and communication from the heart, that you know, you've got this place like the Holy of Holies within you, and you really can trust what God has done at a heart level. Exactly. And the idea of the Holy and Holies in, in you, is we it used to be that the Holy of Holies was in a tent and the Holy Spirit lived in a box. Yeah. And I tell that to these guys all the time is that he's moved from that box in a tent into you and you become that holy of holies. Yes, and for a lot of people, I mean they they scratch their head at that, they throw stones at it, yes. they call it into question, but you know, this is not symbolic. I mean, when we talk about being born of God and born of the spirit and born again, I mean, those aren't just uh, phrases that we pull out of the Bible and and revere them as being something symbolic. I mean, the early Christians didn't die for symbolism. They died uh, for a message that they thought had fundamentally changed the core of who they were. And when you've had your old self ripped out, crucified, and then you're uh, born of God's spirit, you have to say, man, this is, this is worth living for. This is worth proclaiming. This is worth dying for. This is worth celebrating. This is it. It doesn't get any better than literally becoming the house of God. Chapter three, first sentence, can you say I am good? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many of us can say that? How many right, of us will af- say that? Well, we're afraid, Rick. I mean, we're yes. afraid that lightning is going to strike. Yep. We're, we're afraid to say we're good in church because the rhetoric has been you're bad, you're evil, you're wicked, you're deceitful. And that's what humility is, we think. We think humility is to beat ourselves down, but real humility is saying exactly what God says about you, no more and no less. And so, you know, in this book, we're acknowledging that Jesus said nobody's good except God, the Father. But he said that before the cross, before the resurrection, before Pentecost, before the born-again experience. And then in the same breath, he also teaches about a good tree that can bear good fruit. Now, nobody knew what he was talking about then, but today we bear the fruit of the Spirit. So the bottom line is if you've got the Spirit and you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit, that's a pretty good evidence that you're a good tree. So stop calling yourself bad and evil and dirty and rotten and start recognizing I'm a good tree and I'm on God's team and I'm in his family and I'm a perfect fit with a perfect God. I want, um, you talk about the Lord's Prayer, and that's something that a lot of Christians get hung up on. Talk a little bit about why the Lord's Prayer really doesn't apply to us. Yeah, so, you know, before the cross, Jesus is showing them their hypocrisy. You look at the Sermon on the Mount, and I mean, he's saying, cut off body parts, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. He's calling them hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. I mean, it goes on and on how he is showing them that, yeah, they're offering their animal sacrifices, but they're not getting right with their Jewish brother beforehand. 
Uh, you know, if they were truly meeting the standard, they would be perfect like God. And by the way, you know, anger equals murder and looking with lust equals adultery. So nobody makes it out alive. Nobody makes it out alive from the Sermon on the Mount. And that's the whole point. So when you get to the Lord's Prayer, it's no different. And we need to see that because, you know, we're reciting this prayer in churches across the world and we say amen, and then we fail to even reference his conclusion. And his conclusion is, if you forgive others, God will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Now, you know, five minutes later, we say, oh, isn't God's agape love great? It's so unconditional. Well, we just finished reading a condition. condition. We just finished reading, if you forgive others, God will forgive you. So do we really believe that God has unconditional love, or are we just going to cram this sermon and this prayer into our theology and not worry about how it fits? Well, it doesn't fit because it's old covenant. It's before the cross. And the whole point is, I mean, imagine if you got what you deserved. Imagine if you only got the kind of forgiveness that you've been doling out to other people. Well, that's Old Covenant, but the New Covenant, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, they both say the opposite, Rick. They say, you know, forgive others because God already forgave you. Amen. So, you know, I would just say this. If, if we're really going to believe that the Lord's Prayer is our theology for us today, then we need to start being honest with unbelievers. When we sit on the park bench and we're chatting away about the gospel, let's not tell them all their sins are forgiven. Let's tell them they need to go be nice to everybody else first. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's ridiculous that we can't even parse this out and think it through. We talk about total forgiveness, past, present, and future. And then 20 minutes later, we're talking about you'll be forgiven if you forgive. It makes no sense. We need the new covenant to enlighten us. After the cross, everything changes. And that's why you make this important distinction that the first four Gospels are all pre-cross, and that the New Covenant doesn't start at Matthew 1. The New Covenant starts at the cross. I mean, and that's, that's, an, that's a distinction that a lot of people just do not understand. Yeah, and you know, I think, I think it's tricky for people because you go to Matthew 1 and you flip back one page, and then in big block letters it says the New Testament so we assume that the New Testament, that the New Covenant starts with baby Jesus in a manger in mm -hmm. Bethlehem, but Hebrews says you don't start a covenant without blood. Right. So it's really the cross and the, and the sacrifice, the death of Jesus that brings in the New Covenant. But I would say it's even trickier than that for people because, look, we can't just get out a Sharpie pen and go, all right, here's the crucifixion. Now, everything before that, I'm going to just call law, because sometimes, you know, Jesus is teaching about the vine and the branches. He's talking about abiding or living in him. He's talking about uh, who the church will be. So we have to be careful with the teachings of Jesus and say, wait a minute, when is he prophesying about a new way that's coming? Yes. And then when is he burying those hypocrites? When is he burying those Pharisees with nails in the coffin uh, for anyone who thinks they can uh, get right by the law? Good. That's so good. So good. You talked a bit, you started your conversation about heart surgery of sorts yeah. um, at salvation. And I'm reading from chapter four, um, God carried through a spiritual heart surgery of sorts so that he doesn't look at us through Jesus-colored glasses. Talk about yeah. that truth. Yeah. So when God looks at me, he sees Jesus instead. <laughs> Man, that sounds really good. That's a, that's a uh, dream come true. <laughs> yeah. That, that, you know, because if he were to really, really look at me, he would vomit. But thank God <laughs> he looks at Jesus instead. And we think this is good theology. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, would God vomit at the new creation? Would God vomit at the person born of his spirit? It makes no sense. Jesus is not the new creation. He made you the new creation so that you would be a perfect fit with him. 
So it's not that God is looking at Jesus instead of you. He doesn't have those special glasses or some sort of lens that he has to look at you through. You know, the theory is if he were to peek at you behind that lens, then, whoa, he would see you for that nasty creature that you really are. So he sort of hides behind this this lens or filter. And, you know, it's pathetic because, you know, again, you know, five minutes later, we say we're born again and we're born of the spirit and we don't even see the contradiction. So let's start bragging on what Jesus did to us. Let's start bragging on being born of God, that we're partakers of the divine nature. Let's start bragging on the cross and the resurrection, not just for forgiveness and some new place to go someday, but also because he transformed us and made us different and we're we're compatible with him and we're a fragrant aroma to Christ. We don't make him sick, we make him smile. It's like daddy's happy to see us. You yeah. when your when your son Gavin was a little boy and you came home, he came screaming to the door to see right. daddy and that's exactly the relationship that I believe God wants from us. He wants us to come running at him, screaming his name and jumping up into his lap. Yeah, you know, the prodigal son gives us a little window into that. That guy, you know, he had messed up, so he has this big speech rehearsed. He's ready to confess all his sins. Mm-hmm. He's ready to do penance and kind of pull a young Martin Luther routine by uh, beating his back and dragging himself out into the snow all night and making a big deal of his sins. And yet his father, when he sees him, he he doesn't allow for that speech. He doesn't wait for some apology. He just says, bring the finest robes and he's celebrating his kid. And I think we need to see that that is definitely just the beginning of who God the Father is to us, that he dances over us, he celebrates us, he loves us, he's never shocked when we fail. He's already seen all of our sins, and he already decided to take them away and not hold them against us. So, you know, what are we afraid of here? Exactly. (laughs) Um, And I'm still in chapter four, and I see there's a subtitle called called um, Desire Not Disciplines. How often do I have to deal with guys who want to be disciplined? Yeah, and we're calling the most common sense things, we're calling them spiritual disciplines, like, uh, hey, how much have you prayed lately? How much have you read your Bible lately? I just want us to think about, you know, what an insult it would be to our earthly father uh, if, uh, you know, he, he wrote us a letter on a trip, let's say he went over to Europe for a great vacation. He was there three weeks and wrote us a letter. And then, uh, we write him back and say, you know, I didn't really want to read your letter, but I kind of disciplined myself, uh, and made myself do it. Or he calls on the phone and we're like, man, I don't, I don't, I really don't want to pick up, but I'm going to discipline myself to pick up this phone. And that's the sort of attitude that the enemy has grooved us into uh, as believers, because we've heard so much legalism about thou shalt read and thou shalt listen and thou shalt attend and thou shalt do. And we get under those sorts of laws and the law kills and it kills it kills our joy. It kills the fun that we would otherwise have. I mean, look, you crack open the Bible and when you actually understand it. What's not to like about being totally forgiven? What's not to like about being under grace, completely accepted? What's not to like about being one with Jesus? I mean, what's not to like about a a father who's rescued us and forgiven us and lavished us with his love? So when we really get it, we're going to be motivated from the heart out of want to's, and it's not going to feel like somebody's pressuring us. But as long as we're doing it for the church people or the reputation or what will they say or what will they think, we've got to embrace this atmosphere of freedom because then we discover what we really want. And that's the big critique, Rick. I mean, oh man, if you're going to teach this grace, then, then, you know, people are just going to go out and do whatever they want. And that's the fear. Oh, we can't let them do what they want. So look what we're afraid of. We're afraid of what they want because we don't know the new heart message. And we need to see that what we want is a perfect fit with God. Amen. So what you're saying is that our heart is not desperately wicked. 
Yeah, that's an Old Testament reference, yes. and something big has happened. Uh, his name is Jesus, and he <laughs> accomplished a great deal for us. So let's start acting like he actually did something on that cross, and let's start acting like he actually did something through that resurrection. Uh, he calls us children of the resurrection. And, you know, I, I guess I would conclude the thought with this. I mean, where do you find a verse? that says when you hit the pearly gates of heaven that God's going to pull out a spiritual squeegee and finally make you clean and finally make you close and finally make you right and new-hearted. No, it's not there because it's already happened. So I get the thoughts. I mean, I understand. We yeah. get the thoughts sure. in the head. We sure. get the lustful thoughts. We get the critical thoughts. We get the bad thoughts. We get the embarrassing thoughts. I get it. We all get them. You get them. I get them. Yep. And yeah, but let's talk about the heart, not the head. And so if we could take that journey down here and discover that even though these thoughts can be shocking, I can still live from here in the moment. And God's done something that's not going to happen later. It's a finished work. It's finished that he transformed us at the core and we can count ourselves alive, bonded, connected, fused to Jesus right here and now. Amen. Amen. I was talking to a guy, I do uh, counseling for a, a recovery um, center here in Edmond. And um, I made the comment that none of us want to sin. And it, yeah. the look on his face was like, you just said the worst thing possible. Um, <laughs> because yeah. I have a whole house full of guys who want to sin and I go and, and, and they don't, that's why they're here. We, yeah. our new heart does not want to sin. Yeah. So, you know, what do we think it means when it says we're a slave of righteousness? Yes. I, I was just out in California and one of my main points was you don't want to sin and I titled this, you know, something you may never hear in church that you don't want to <laughs> sin because we've constantly been told, hey, you want to sin, but you better not. And you want to do evil, but you better live right. And you want to yes. do things that are wicked, but you better live holy. And do we see that you, if that's true, you're being asked to fake it? I mean, God is telling you, please don't be yourself for oh, I don't know, 80 years. Please don't be yourself <laughs> for 80 years, and then we'll fix you in heaven. And if that's the gospel, it stinks. I mean, if the gospel is, please don't be you, and please shove down your desires, and please live right even though you're wrong, I mean, that's a horrible gospel. And the truth is, you know, Romans 6 says, though you used to be slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart, and you became slaves of righteousness. So I like to say, Rick, that, I mean, we're going to prove our new identity one way or another. We're going to prove it by sinning and being miserable or by trusting Jesus and being fulfilled. But either way, we're going to prove that we're new hearted and that we don't really want to sin. That's right. That's right. Wow. That's why this book is so necessary, Drew. This hmm. book, every Every Christian needs to read this book, and I want part of the money for saying that, okay? <laughs> I want commission for saying that, yeah, because yeah. it's so necessary to hear these truths. We, I'm, I'm 71 years old. I've heard these lies my whole life. Yeah. I, 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 there was something in me that didn't buy into it as I got older, but I still, I still wrestled with... Um, with the idea that um, I have to perform in order for God to be pleased with me. And it just is not true. In your book, um, you talk about this page in the book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, a, a, a Chinese missionary, Watchman Nee, yes. once, once uh, used a, a similar idea. He said, uh, that you know, you throw something in a fire if, the, if there's a paper or an object that's inside another and you throw it in a fire or you throw it in a hole in the ground, what happens to it? Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm saying that if, if you throw this book in the ground, 
What happens to all the pages? They're buried too. What if you throw this book in a fire? What happens to all the pages? Well, uh, they're burned up too. And then if you take this this book and you raise it up on a shelf, just like the one behind me here, uh, what happens to the pages inside? Well, they're raised up and they're seated on that shelf too. And so I love this because it gives us a, an analogy for being in Christ. And if we're in Christ, then we're put through what he experienced. Yes. He experienced the cross, the burial, the resurrection, and even the seating in heavenly places. So Ephesians says, we've been raised up and we've been seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So I, I don't know, Rick, it just seems like this idea of being in Christ and the word in, we've lost that concept that, you know, I think it's about what I'm doing, but it's really about who I'm in. So you talked about a moment ago about the message you've heard all your life that, you know, he's, he's either mad at me or frustrated at me. I need to do more and be more, but that's, that's about actions. And what we need to see is, you know, it's not about what we're doing. It's about who we're in and we were in Adam. Now we're in Christ. And that's what makes us pleasing that through being in Christ, we experienced this heart surgery and we're pleasing by nature. We're not just pleasing when we trust him. We're pleasing by nature. And, and that, that's a big deal. I love your passion for this message. Um, when, I, when I was reading your website, um, it's one of the things that says that you travel all the country pro- proclaiming the finished work of Christ with boldness and clarity. I just was wondering, is there a chance that you wouldn't do boldness and clarity? I'm no good at, I'm no good at, at shyness. Uh, no, no, nobody's ever called me shy. Uh, uh, and yeah, you know, like it or not, here I am and I'm coming on strong because I'm excited. Oh, and it's exciting. Passionate. And I, you know, I'll probably be this way until I'm 99 and then uh, I'll, I'll continue to be that way into eternity all the more. I love it. I love it. Okay. Do you mind if we keep going through the book? Is, sure. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Well, chapters, chapter seven, you begin it with the documentary film, The Wasteland, and how these people live in yeah. it's Rio de Janeiro, how they live on a garbage dump. Talk, talk about what that meant to you. Yeah. So these kids, I mean, nobody would choose that. You watch this documentary and they're living in a trash heap. They're making houses out of cardboard boxes and and milk cartons and all of that. And, and you say, nobody would choose that. And yet we sort of have this theory that that's what God has chosen, that he's chosen to live in a, in a dirty place to take up residence in something that we've called sinful and dirty and wicked. And then you actually look at the message of the gospel. And he says, your body is the temple of the Holy spirit. He says, your body is holy and acceptable to him. Um, he says you're one spirit with him. So body, soul, and spirit, even your soul, which is your personality, I mean, that's going to heaven. You're not going to get a second soul later. You're not going to get a soul touch-up later either. So your soul and your body and your spirit, they are all good with God and compatible with God. Even though you're going to get a new body someday, he still calls your body holy and acceptable to him. So we got to stop this trash heap theology, this dirty yes. worm belief system, and, and start calling ourselves blameless and righteous and and compatible. I love that word because, you know, some people think it's uh, it's got to be all of God and none of us. That it's got to be less of me and more of Him. Like it's a competition. I mean, mm-hmm. we even have billboards here in West Texas that espouse that theology, more of him, less of me. Yep. Well, God, God already had that. I mean, before creation, he already had all of him and none of us, but he created us, he pursued us, he saved us, he dwells in us, because he's inviting us to the table to, to feast on his goodness and, and to participate with him. It's all of us and all of him together in a beautiful union. He's not trying to replace us he wants to embrace us. Right, right. Yeah, but the argument is Paul said he was the chiefs of sinners. 
Yeah. And, you know, you look, you look at that, you look at that and he's talking about when he assassinated Christians. I mean, you know, he's talking about his history at at, uh, snuffing out the lives of believers. And that's what he's saying about God's grace, that God's grace is so big that God even (laughs) saved him. He felt like he felt like he'd set a world record for sinning. And I get it. I mean, you know, it's like Michael Jordan. If Michael Jordan said, I'm the greatest basketball player of all time. And then somebody said, well, you don't play anymore. Well, he can still say he's the greatest of all time because he set records. And that's what Paul is saying. I set a record at sinning. No, I'm not a dirty, rotten sinner anymore, but I set a record at sinning. But no, I wouldn't call myself a sinner. I'd call myself a saint now, holy and righteous and blameless and forgiven. But can I just tell you about how big my sinning was so that I can show you how big God's grace is? That's his point. Yes, yes. Um, I, I was sitting here thinking, had a thought, and then I looked at the, I have the book open here, and I forgot what I was going to say. Um, so I'll just go on to my next question. Um, yeah. Chapter eight, mm-hmm. it's both and. The simple truth is that both of these ideas appear from the Bible. First, Romans tells us the righteousness is imputed. Oh, he's talking about um, mm-hmm. um, being righteous. Yeah. Imputed or imparted. Yeah. Huge so, distinction. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it. it's like we have shied away from this imparted righteousness thing. Uh, the Catholics have said it's progressively imparted. The Protestants have said it's imputed, but never imparted. And we just can't seem to get this thing right. And it's so simple that when the Spirit of God takes up residence in you and says that you're born of Him, He is sharing His righteousness with you. And so it's imparted. It's not just in a ledger. It's not in some, you know, some sort of, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, book up in heaven or some clipboard where He's keeping tabs on your righteousness account. No, I mean, this is real. It's surgery. So when he says, you know, Paul says, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have come by the law. I want you to notice that expression. If a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have been by the law. What's he saying? You've got today in Jesus, you've got an imparted life righteousness. You have a righteousness that comes by the imparted life of Christ. The law could not impart that life, but Jesus did impart that life, and that's how you became righteous. So you are a partaker or sharer in this divine nature, and it's not just bookkeeping up in heaven. It's real. Yes, it is very real. Um. And you talk about being slaves to righteousness. Um, Galatians 5.1, I'm free. Uh, It is for freedom that Christ set me free. So don't be yoked to slavery again. We are no longer slaves slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. And people can't make that leap either, it seems like, with the guys I talk to. Yeah. So remember when you were a slave of sin, I mean, you could call that an addiction. And, you know, I think we need to say that now we have a similar addiction. We're addicted to Jesus. And what I mean by that is there is a secret to your contentment and you're going to figure this out one way or another. It might take five years or five decades, but we're going to figure out I am only made content by one thing expressing Christ, and everything else stinks. Nothing else works for me. I'm addicted to Jesus. I'm enslaved to a new kind of fulfillment, and I can't get away from it. You know, I'm allergic to eggs, uh, and when I eat an egg on accident or eat something with egg in it, then I experience all kinds of symptoms. There's headaches. My system goes into shock. Well, you know, the Bible says you're allergic to sin, you're allergic to sin and you're addicted to Jesus. And so don't be surprised if some alarms go off, if your system goes, I reject this, because 
you know, God's already told us ahead of time, count yourself dead, count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. That's like saying, count yourself allergic to sin and addicted to Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'm going to go back a little bit. Um, maybe I'm not, I don't, I don't know if this is backward or not, but the church um, continually tries to make the law and grace compatible. And obviously they are not. Yeah. And, and gosh, how, I don't know how much counseling you do. You probably don't do much because you're traveling so much, but I am constantly battling. Well, yeah. the old Testament says I am this, um, but it's not compatible with who you are. Yeah. I mean, you know, so I do the nightly radio program and I mean, that is a huge question that comes up over and over and over Rick, this yes. idea of law and grace. And it's almost like there's a, a holdout, you know, we're, we're dead to the law, except for the 10 commandments. Christ is the end of the law, except for the 10 commandments. You're not under the law, except for the 10 commandments. And that's been our, our holdout in religious circles that, yeah, you can tell me Jesus is my sacrifice, but don't tell me that I need to let go of Moses for daily living. And so I'm, I'm going to look to these 10. Wait a minute. No, not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is too inconvenient. So I'm going to look to the nine commandments. You know, thou shall not lie. Thou shall not steal. Thou shall not commit adultery. So I'm going to take Jesus for his sacrifice. And then I'm going to take Moses for his morality. And it's crazy because, you know, the Bible basically says in Romans 7 that flirting with Moses is cheating on Jesus. And we need to know that, that we're not intended for spiritual adultery here. If I've trusted Jesus for his sacrifice to take away all my sins, then why wouldn't I trust his presence in me? Do I need to go back to tablets of stone? I mean, 2 Corinthians 3 actually says in the Bible, in black and white, in print, it says that there is a ministry on stone that is a ministry of condemnation and death. Now, do you want that in your life? Do you want condemnation and death in your life? Then go ahead and invite the Ten Commandments in. I mean, that's what 2 Corinthians 3 is saying. There's a ministry on stone that is condemnation and death, and then there's a greater ministry today, the ministry of God's Spirit, Christ in you. It's a better ministry founded on better promises. So why would we look to something inferior when we've got something superior? So yeah, the church is confused, but the clarity can be obvious if we would listen to the Spirit's calling in our lives. He's saying, I'm going to do it all for you. I trust you. You can trust me. Let's work together, me and you and you and me, and I'm enough. Amen. I, I, I want to get into um, spirit and flesh, but first I have a question. And yeah. Lori and I watched The Chosen again, and in the, oh, yeah. in the last episode, there's this um, um, dialogue between Nicodemus and one of his students, and the student says that there can't be anything other than the law because the law is God. Um, and that, hearing that caused caused uh, goosebumps. My fear, in in some sense, that a lot of church members make the Bible God, mm, and yeah. they and they they worship this book more than they worship the author. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? I know I don't think this is addressed in the book in your new book, yeah. but yeah. So Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but the scriptures testify about me, and you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Jesus himself is differentiating the scriptures from the author, and he's saying, don't basically, don't treat this like a math book. Don't treat this like a history book. You know, you read those books to get information but you read the Bible to get to know the author. Yes. And, you know, at, at the early church, 70, 80% of them were illiterate. They couldn't read. And so they were lucky to have one letter, you know, in Galatia or Ephesus or Corinth, they were lucky to have one or two letters. They would read it over and over. Some guy 
would stand up in a crowd and he would read it to the church and everybody would say amen and then they'd continue fellowshipping and praying together, but most of them couldn't read a word of it. And so we're fixated on measuring our reading and telling people they've got to have their quiet time every day. And if you haven't had one, then you're not a good, strong Christian and all of that stuff. And we got to realize the early church, they couldn't have a quiet time. They had to have a loud time where one guy was screaming <laughs> the contents of the letter and the others were trying to soak it in. But but I mean, your point is well taken that it's not simply about words on a page. It's about the author living in you. And even when they had one letter or no letter, they had his life in them. And that's the most essential ingredient of all. So look, I, I love the scriptures. The gospel yep. that, that we celebrate is from the scriptures. There's no doubt that uh, we would be sorely lacking if we didn't have the scriptures today, but thank God we do, uh, and it's inspired, and it's beautiful, and there's no better message on the planet, but the message is fix your eyes on Jesus. The message is look to the author. The message is call upon him to dwell in you, and that is the core of the message itself. And it's actually the core of your book as well. Yes, is that, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Jesus what you say continually is Jesus plus nothing. Yes, amen. In this book, you defined, came up one of the best de definitions of the flesh that I've read. Talk about um, the difference, talk about the war of the flesh between the flesh and the spirit. Yeah, so you know you can you can look at the flesh so many different ways. I mean, let's let's take the president. So every four or eight years, a new president goes into the White House, and one of the first things they do is they try to undo the policies of the former administration. And <laughs> so you know the policies of the former administration. That's kind of what the flesh is. Uh, we move in as new creations. We've now moved into this new life in Christ but we've still got policies of the former administration. Very good. Uh, you could call it stinking thinking. You could call it, uh, you know, the, the software that, you know, I've got this uh, new iPhone here and I bought it about, oh, I don't know, six months ago. But as soon as I bought it, I was on it five minutes and it said, I need a software update. And I'm like, I just bought this thing. But that shows you the difference between hardware and then software updates. And so God is saying, you've got the new hardware, but you still need the renewing of the mind, the software updates. So that's what the flesh is. The flesh is unrenewed mindsets, old attitudes, stinking thinking, policies of the former administration, but it's not who you are. So, so let's call the flesh an enemy, but you're not the flesh. Let's call sin an enemy, uh, but you're not sin. Let's call the world an enemy, but you're not the world. You're not of this world. So in this book, The Perfect You, we're saying, we got to stop this business of, you know, oh, I'm so sorry, that was my flesh. That's just my flesh, my <laughs> flesh. And we almost treat it like a kitty cat that we're petting and saying, it's my flesh. And we take ownership of it and we call it our own and we almost make it us. And then Paul says, I recognize no person according to the flesh. and so we've got to say, I've got influencers, the flesh, the world, the devil. I've got influencers, but those things are not me. And when I realize that, man, uh, it really helps me get clarity on what my desires are. And, and that does away, I think, with sin nature. Yeah. That proves yeah. sin nature is not a part of us. Right. So, you know, I had a I had a back and forth with Zondervan about this in 2009. My book was coming out, my first book, The Naked Gospel. And my publisher, Zondervan, was the same as, as the publisher of the NIV. They were putting out this Bible, the NIV, that said sinful nature, you know, in half a dozen places or more. And so I write in this book, in my first book, I say sinful nature is not the way to go. It's not a good definition of the Greek word sarks. It, it doesn't make sense. Uh, so then they, they email me, Zondervan emails me and says, hey, uh, 
we read what you wrote about sinful nature, and you know, we put the Bible out uh, in the NIV version, so we'll definitely look at this issue. Wow. And you know, they let me proceed with the book, uh, stating the problem. And within three years, Rick, the the new committee had met, and I got to actually talk with the chairman of the NIV committee later, and he told me that this was a big issue for them that that they had had multiple complaints about it and that they inquired into it, studied it out. And in the latest version of the NIV, they actually eliminated almost all of the instances of sinful nature and changed it back to flesh because so many Christians were getting confused. They were saying, I've got a new nature, but then I've got a sinful nature. So I guess I have two natures and I guess I've got this sort of split personality, spirituality, this dichotomy of the good me and the bad me, and it was very unhealthy. And so, you know, when you can see, no, wait a minute, I'm one person with one heart and one relationship with God, and I'm on his team, and I've got influencers coming from the outside of who I am, but those aren't me. Those are influencers, but they don't define me. Right, right examining ourselves. That sounds so pious and religious. And you talk about it. That's something we regularly do in common Christian circles. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And Paul says, don't do it. I mean, he, he says the opposite. He says, I do not even examine myself. He says, it means very little that you examine me and I do not even examine myself. And so you know, like David, I think we can ultimately say, you search me, Lord, you see what's in me, you show me the way. Uh, so it's it's the Holy Spirit's job to counsel us uh, in that regard. But if if you try to play a basketball game and you're constantly picking up the ball going, did I foul, did I foul, then you're going to be stifled. You can't dribble, you can't shoot, you can't pass, you're constantly worried, did I mess up? And you're looking to the ref that's not no way to play basketball. I mean, the best way to play is play the game, enjoy it, and let the ref be the ref. So in that regard, let the Holy Spirit be your counselor. He's God. He's big enough to bring something up if it needs to be dealt with. But until then, play the game. And, you know, we even do this, we do this at the Lord's Supper. We're telling everybody examine themselves But the reason Paul said that is because they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and they were eating up all the food. And we pull that verse out of context and dim the lights and play sad music and try to get everybody to introspect. But really, I mean, what did Jesus say? He's holding up the cup. He's holding up the bread. He says, do this in remembrance of me. So this is supposed to be about Jesus but we end up doing it in remembrance of me instead of him. And we've got it backwards and the whole thing becomes a mockery really at that point. So anyway, the bottom line is play the game, be yourself, fix your eyes on Jesus. You don't have to uh, be involved in this infestation of examination. And that, that ties together so well, the idea of me focusing on my flesh me focusing on my behavior, me focusing on um, all the things I, I need to do in the future. And by doing that, my focus is on me and not on Jesus. And yeah. it, is, it is so important that we let the past go because it's dead. Um, we can't live in the future because that'd be fantasy. So why can't we live today and just enjoy this relationship. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's it right there. Live in the present. God set it up so we can do it. I mean, he calls himself. I am. Uh, and so he's saying, live with me in the present. I'm the God who is, I am. And you know, he's dealt with our sin records. So why worry about the past? And then, uh, you know, we can trust him with the future and there, even our next sin is forgiven. So we can trust him with that. Uh, so he set it up so that we can live right here, right now, uh, and not be consumed with the size of our sins. We can be consumed with the size of our Savior, yes. and that's that needs to be our focus, and it can be because of what he's done for us. Um, we got about five minutes left. Okay. Can you um, 
let's see, can you wrap this up and tell people why they need to buy this book? And I, it sounds self-serving, but it's not because of what you learn from this book and how it impacts how we live our lives day to day. And like you just said, um, be in the moment with God. Yeah. So, you know, this is, this is rescue. If you've, if you've been hurt by religiosity, if you've been abused, we don't even realize we've been abused sometimes, Rick, but I mean, think about it. When you've heard 500 sermons that tell you do more and be more and do more and be more, and there's always a program and there's always 10 steps or three steps or whatever, when you're told you're dirty and distant that's abuse because basically you're being told that there that God is in love with a future version of you that performs better. God is in love with a future version of you that does more and loves more and is better. And, and then that's rejection. That's rejection right here and now because you're always thinking, well, soon I'll be what I need to be for God. And one day he'll really like me. And nobody would say it this directly. Nobody's going to tell you to your face, God's in love with a future version. But I'm just telling you that when you've heard laundry lists, laundry lists of things that you're supposed to do to be better, be stronger, love more, do more, then you're always going to be future focused. You can't enjoy the present. So in this book, we're saying, what if you're okay? What if you're more than okay? What if you're off the charts pleasing to God right now before you ever lift a finger, before you ever have your day? What if he's crazy about you? What if he's done more to you than you can possibly imagine? I know you don't feel it all. I don't feel it all. I know your emotions are all over the place, but what if God has actually done something miraculous at your core? That's what we're saying in the perfect you. So you know, you might you might struggle in your marriage. You're arguing a lot. You're trying to win. You're you're living from the head. We're saying you can live from the heart, and you can discover how to do that. Uh, you know, what if what if you just constantly can't get over the size of your sins? You know, this book will help you. Yes. What if what if you have thought that you're a dirty worm and you're supposed to think that, and that God wants you to think that? Well, this book will help you with that. So. We really want to help people. We want to see people rescued from the clutches of spiritual abuse and to really enjoy Jesus the way he intended. Amen. Amen. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Drew, for your time. Um, how can people how can people get your radio program? Yeah, well, you can get the book on Amazon if you want, but all of our resources are free at andrewfarley.org. Uh, you can find archives and live programs on our website at andrewfarley.org. Amen. Thank you, Drew. You bet. Thank you, Rick.